When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. A kiss on the hand. How'd you get your start? Maybe. What start? In movies. Quite continental. I guess I was discovered. That's Ana de Armas and Bobby Cannavale in the trailer for Blonde, director Andrew Dominic's divisive and explicit new film about Marilyn Monroe. I'm definitely going to bring the explicitness to this show, Josh. (laughs) Can't wait. Marilyn, not the only platinum blonde on this week's show. We've also got Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity, the final film in our Summer of Stanwyck Marathon. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. You know, Josh, if this show is good for nothing else, it at least offers me a chance to revisit and to talk about one of the best films of all time every decade or so. It is going to be so fun to talk Cedar Rapids with you, Adam. (laughs) How dare you? Later in the show, the sixth and final film in our summer of Standbook Marathon. No, we're not talking Cedar Rapids. We are talking 1944's Double Indemnity, directed by Billy Wilder and starring Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray. So good. Yeah, this one, you're very familiar with Adam knocking out a big blind spot for me here. Our podcast listeners, Josh, will also get the Stanwyck Marathon Awards. We're calling them the Hopsy Potsies. More on that in Stanwyck later as we share our favorite scenes, performances, and more from our deep dive into the best of Stanwyck's first couple of decades in movies. But first, Adam and I have had about 14 hours to figure out if Blonde makes us angry or overjoyed. Marilyn doesn't exist. When I come out of my dressing room, I'm Norma Jean. I'm still hurt when the camera's rolling. exists on the screen. Marilyn Monroe. When you hear that name, what comes to mind? An image, most likely, from the icon's early modeling career, perhaps, or a promotional photo for one of her later movies, or maybe a scene from a film like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes or The Seven Year Itch or Some Like It Hot. Maybe, though, it's not an image that ignites in your mind, but a song. Bye Bye Baby. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Happy birthday, Mr. President. We all have some conception of Marilyn Monroe, even if we've never seen any of her films. Blonde, the moody new biopic starring Ana de Armas as Monroe, thinks of the woman born Norma Jean Mortensen 
as a psychological horror victim. Writer-director Andrew Dominic adapts the novel by Joyce Carol Oates with an emphasis on the traumatic elements of Monroe's life. With lush, dreamily evocative imagery of the kind we'd expect from the director of The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, Blonde felt, at least to me, a bit like Nightmare Malick. Before we get to your impression of Blonde, Adam, I want to go back to Monroe herself. Going into this movie, what was your conception of Marilyn Monroe? And did Blonde do anything to expand, challenge, or enlighten that? I will say that walking out of Blonde last night, Josh, as we're taping this, I was thinking about how I wished I had listened to the You Must Remember This season that Karina Longworth devoted to Marilyn Monroe. I know there's a whole Dead Blondes series that she did. But now I'm even more eager to finally catch up with that. I'd like to have a better conception of Marilyn Monroe, a fuller, more informed one anyway. Of course, you referenced a lot of the touchstones. I know some of her work. Certainly, we've all picked up bits about her troubled life from other media. Candle in the Wind, anybody? An artist that I used to play on the show a lot back in the early days, Dan Byrne, has a song, a great song. It was, in fact, the tune that turned me on to his music called Marilyn, where he suggests, playfully, of course, that she should have married Henry Miller instead of Arthur Miller. Everything would have been better for her had she married Henry Miller instead. And he admits at the end, finally, okay, maybe she'd have died the same anyway, but if she did, she'd have had more fun. There have been other depictions of her on screen over the years as well. But if I'm being totally honest, for better or worse, I walked into Blonde thinking of Marilyn as one of our all-time most tragic victims. Not just Hollywood victims, but I suppose American popular culture at large, used, abused, degraded, unappreciated, not just in her time as an artist, but just as a person, not someone viewed purely as an object or as is referenced a couple of times in this film, a piece of meat. I think Marilyn's on the victim Mount Rushmore. And I say that with pure empathy, not dismissing it at all. So to go back to your question, did Blonde expand or challenge my view? This is really the crux of the matter with this film, isn't it? The answer is maybe it expanded it. Hopefully we'll get to that. Challenge it? No, not so much. In fact, Blonde, I think, forcefully leans into that idea of victimhood and the way it expresses it. It's an unconventional approach for biopics. It's unconventional, certainly, but it's not rare. Watching it, I was thinking about the recent Pablo Lorraine films like Jackie and Spencer that also offer these kind of fractured, terrifying, funhouse mirror experiences. And think about this film and what we experienced last night. Josh, how many shots are actual shots of mirrors and us seeing reflections, blurred shots in a variety of different ways, a lot of different techniques there. The camera often seeming to stalk her and Marilyn the arm is here often looking right into the camera, sometimes like it's an implicit plea for help. And everyday moments and scenes become these nightmarish hellscapes, as Dominic depicts them. And then you add on top of it how we alternate between black and white, widescreen, traditional 
Hollywood, more square aspect ratio. At one point, what are we to call it, Josh? Do we get a cervix shot? Um, I think that I can't attest if that's anatomically correct, but it's close. Okay. It's close enough. We get a toilet shot. We get drawer shots that feel like a coffin. In this case, everything about this film and the experience of watching it unnerves you and makes you uneasy and you feel like you never get your bearings. There's a key scene later in the film that occurs when she is married to Arthur Miller played here really quite nicely, I think, by Adrian Brody, that involves roses. And after that, did you notice how roses seem to dominate her life? She can't escape them. The dress she's wearing has rose prints on it. The wallpaper in her house is covered in roses. It's not realistic. It's more about her psychological state and this idea that she now can't escape them. Even some of the scenes where she's having her photo taken at a movie premiere, that could be pretty standard and innocuous. Did you notice how the the camera clicks, the camera shutters are piercing? They're more like gunshots. And you see cameras falling down and bulbs spraying everywhere. There's an actual sense of violence just in her being photographed. And the degradation feels unrelenting. I think it feels that way. Whether or not it is, as I've thought about the film more and more, I can recall many moments that offer some joy and offer different windows into Marilyn. But the overall sense of it and the feeling I had is that it was unrelenting. So is the movie a success because Dominic puts us in Marilyn's head and makes us experience life through her sad eyes in a way that is off-putting and difficult? Or I'm going to throw it back to you, Josh. Is this yet another person exploiting her and her sadness? Does Dominic force us as viewers to become vulgar voyeurs just like everyone else around her? Yeah, I thought about that, and I'm not falling quite there. I can see some people making that criticism, and there's probably a few shot selections that could back up that argument. I don't think I'm there. I'm still mulling over where I'm at and where I am, and I'm hoping you can help me actually work my way through this. The Lorraine films are very good comparisons in terms of the psychological approach. I think that this is more heightened in many ways than both of those. Yes. Um, And that speaks to the aesthetic elements you've already touched on. And I want to get back to, especially those moments of joy. I'm curious, I can think of maybe a handful, one or two, and I think they're tied to some of the aesthetic choices. So I want to hear some more about that. But going back to this idea at the top of, you know, what I might have learned, very similar to you, the the popular imagination of Marilyn Monroe was this tragic figure, was this victim. And over the years, as I've actually gone to watch some of her more iconic films, I recognize that the fuss was about way more than that, even though that's what the fuss was about at the time. Blonde documents that too, the tabloid sensationalism. Man, she's made some fantastic movies and Mm -hmm. she's been the reason, one of the main reasons why they're so good. Something like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, just rewatched a few months ago. I absolutely love, largely again because of Monroe, uh, Some Like It Hot, an absolute classic, the Wilder film, and um, she is crucial to that as well. So so my perception of her going in was, yes, the victim, 
yes, this sex bomb, but also really a top-notch comedian, an absolute dead stone comedian who knows how to hit a line, how to move her body to get laughs that were honestly way more self-aware than anything I think we get in this film. So did I learn anything new? I could say I got some more salacious detail maybe. And again, based on the Joyce Carol Oates novel, some of this possibly fictionalized. There's a lot of playing around with fact and fiction here. So I probably got some more salacious detail I wasn't aware of then before related to her trauma. I don't know if I got much else that was new mm-hmm. or enlightening uh, in the film or honestly in the performance. We'll get to Ana de Armas and, and talk about that in detail. Here's what I'm trying to weigh. I'm trying to weigh what I do think is a well-intentioned critique of the Hollywood system and us as viewers for sacrificing a troubled woman at the altar of stardom. It's something we've seen happen many times. As you point out, Adam, Monroe is maybe the prime example of it. I'm trying to balance that, which I can understand as a motivation for making this film, but also with the hyper-focus the movie has on that and the damage that she suffered in a way that for me drowns out the talent she had, mm-hmm. and the art she helped make. I play the ukulele and I sing, too. Sings, too? <laughs> well, I don't have much of a voice, but then this isn't much of a band, either. I'm only with them because I'm running away. Running away from what? Oh, don't get me started on that. Hey, you want some? It's bourbon. <laughs> I'll take a rain check. <laughs> I don't you to think I'm a drinker. I can stop any time I want to, only I don't want to, especially when I'm blue. We understand. All the girls drink. It's just that I'm the one that gets caught. Story of my life. I always get the fuzzy end of the lollipop. I don't want to be naive and say, you know, and plug my ears to what Monroe endured. But I also want a way to think of these incredibly wonderful movies like Some Like It Hot, like Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, again, which are wonderful very much because of her, as more than signposts on her journey of pain. And that's what they felt like to me. The reference to those two pictures and something like the seven-year itch here, uh, it's not like they ruined, this movie ruins those movies. And again, I want to be, to hold both things in tension, to recognize that those were possibly painful experiences with her. But man, I don't know. You mentioned the toilet point of view shot that we get here. One of the more ostentatious ones, it's when she's on a plane and rushes into the bathroom and throws up into the toilet and the the vomit actually hits the lens. And my worst response to Blonde is that I felt like it was kind of puking on Monroe's work. Mm-hmm. Not her, but, you know, the, the things she may have in the talent she had, the things she may have enjoyed um, about the work that she did with these other artists. I didn't get a sense of that in in the film at all, which again was maybe not the intent. So I don't know if this is a place to kind of circle back to that those elements of joy you saw because I really did feel like that was missing. It is missing. I think that there are a few moments and we see them early on, even though there's still something even a little bit sinister in a lot of those interactions that occur between her and these two men she's having a relationship with to sons of famous movie stars. It's Eddie G. Robinson Jr. and Charles Chaplin Jr. that she has this very passionate love affair with, at least as depicted in this film. And there are moments throughout that where you see that spark and you see that life 
force really come through. It also comes through in the moments where she is at least initially experiencing pregnancy. And she's contemplating at that moment anyway, the future joy that should come with that. I think you also do see it. And we're not really ultimately disagreeing on how we see the film overall, Josh, at least at this point, because I think that the balance is completely out of whack. But I think in terms of how the movie might possibly expand our view or understanding of Monroe, it does come in its depiction of those scenes where she's performing. Over time, I think Monroe has become reappreciated. She's certainly been reappraised. And most people understand her talent. Most movie watchers, most cinephiles understand that she wasn't just this blonde bombshell up on screen, but she really was a formidable performer. And I think this movie overall respects that. We see not just her comedic abilities, as you noted, in some of these scenes, but we also see the way she can bring herself to a serious performance, perhaps even as an actress way ahead of her time. I think there's an early scene that really stands out for me, that screen test scene. It's it's revealing in that she disappears into this disturbed character and Dominic just keeps the camera completely on her in close up the entire time as we we go on this journey with her through this character's head and psychology and everyone in the moment seems pretty blown away by it except then we see that the real response is when she leaves the room is well that's not really acting she's clearly just a disturbed person herself and she's tapping into that to play this character and that's not acting someone says well it wasn't it wasn't acting at the time that's not how it was viewed but certainly over time because of the method and other approaches, that is exactly what became real acting. And we see in moments like that, we see in the recreations of some of those famous scenes, and we see in the moment where she interacts with Arthur Miller for the first time, some of the intellect and heft that she brings to character and understanding what characters are motivated by, that she's someone who is thinking deeply about her work. And she's thinking deeply about her work, not because Josh necessarily she's a professional and that's what professionals do, but because it's tied to this larger idea Dominic is exploring, which is this schism between Norma Jean and Marilyn is even more pointed and deliberate and distinct than anyone maybe could have ever imagined. That she she truly is someone who is always stuck between inhabiting a fantasy. Everyone who interacts with her only sees her as Marilyn and is having that moment between the screen image. But she doesn't feel like that person or doesn't seem to really have any respect for that person or what that person does and wants to get away from that as much as possible. And then the conundrum of it, Josh, the the tragic element of it is but that's the only way she also does find any joy is up on the screen where she can disappear like she does in that screen test into a character. Everything makes sense because she knows what the character is supposed to do, what the character is supposed to say, why the character is doing it. It's only when she's out of that mode that then life is really hard. 
that thread of the distinction between Norma Jean and Marilyn is an interesting one and actually ends up giving one of the better sequences, leading to one of the better sequences, I think, in the movie. This shot of her, this is later in the film. She's already struggling with addiction and other an emotional instability and kind of having to be propped up at this point to perform. She's sitting in front of a mirror alongside a makeup artist and they have to conjure Marilyn from uh-huh. Norma Jean. I think she even says, please come, please come. And the camera swings around from her disheveled, distressed face to the mirror where we see Marilyn Monroe all dialed up. So that is an interesting thread and it's nicely visualized there. Um, you know, the, the, I'm with you on the joy in that early romantic triangle. I also think there is joy in the early scenes, the domestic scenes with Arthur Miller. And there's mm-hmm. something interesting. Both of those sections are in color. And I was trying to track a little bit the use of black and white and color. And I don't think it it probably always falls along along these lines. But certainly the darker moments seem to be in black and white. And when we do get these intermittent bursts of color, at least I tracked in that romantic triangle sequence, you see that almost all in color. And then out in the garden in Arthur Miller's at his house at the estate and on the beach with him. Those are very lush and vibrant. So uh, so I think that does work well. And I do see those moments of, of joy. I split with you on the performance scenes, though, because I read those almost entirely as her feeling like she was a piece of meat. And I particularly think of, uh, this is from the famous sequence in The Seven-Year Itch where she stands over the subway grate and the air blows up her skirt. Man, that thing, also in black and white, if I'm remembering correctly, it is like a 10-minute sequence of Mm -hmm. revisiting that again as a work of psychological horror. Yes, she is smiling and playing to the crowd there, but we get it over and over from different angles. The skirt just keeps blowing up, and it's oppressive, nightmarish, and I took that to be her experience, and we see onset moments from... I believe it's Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and from Some Like It Hot where she she breaks down and, and throws a fit because she can't handle it. So, mm-hmm. so I didn't get that from the performance sequences. And that screen test scene, um, maybe here's where we could talk about Ana de Armas because, man, I wish that scene worked for me the way it so clearly wanted to. As you said, it has these surrogate audience members, the men listening to the screen test. We're, we're, we see that they're supposed to just be not even able to understand how she's coming across this way. And and as you said, not sure what to do with it. For me, Ana de Armas is just not selling that the way it needed to be sold. And I think of, it's in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Isn't there a somewhat similar scene with DiCaprio and then the younger actress says afterwards, that was the best acting I've ever mm-hmm. seen. And, and that, this is sort of a, a, mo- a motif or a, not a motif, but something you see every once in a while where an actor is supposed to act as an actor and we're supposed to be wowed by the acting. And this one right. fell flat. And I think it comes back to something about Diarmas's performance for me is that she does an incredible Marilyn Monroe impression as Marilyn Monroe. And that was the limit for me here. Unlike something like Austin Butler in Elvis from this year, um, Take that as a point of comparison. Dharma seems to miss the spirit. And here's maybe where we split mm. on. Mm-hmm. Um, she has the precision 
but not the vivacity that I'm looking for that you see on screen from Marilyn Monroe, even when she's playing Marilyn Monroe. And again, maybe it's because the movie isn't interested in any joy she experienced as a performer or that she brought to audiences. And so I think back to my viewing of this movie and just try to wonder, are there any moments Darmus gives us something other than Marilyn? I think that screen test wants to because she hasn't fully developed the Marilyn Monroe persona yet. This is for a very early right. role. Uh Maybe that there's this one brief scene, an angry phone call. I'm not sure if she's on the phone with her agent, but she's complaining about Jane Russell getting paid more for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And she actually uses a different voice. It's one of the rare times Daramus uses the non-breathy, you know, a, a voice that isn't the breathy Monroe. You pointed another good one, Adam, that conversation about playing the character of Magda with Arthur Miller. She uses a different voice there and has... You see someone there who is not Marilyn Monroe. The only other one I can remember, I think she dropped all voices and almost slipped into like a, her her natural Cuban accent mm-hmm. when Monroe breaks character on the set of Some Like It Hot and throws a fit. I, I thought I caught like one line there where I was like, wait, wait a minute, did I just hear yeah. Amade Armas there? And, and I wondered if that was intentional. But for me, this is a performance that's be. technically very technically proficient, but just just missing a, another layer or two below that, even in the scenes where it's trying to give us that. Yeah, that's something we do see a little bit differently. And I'll even go back real quick to that scene I mentioned, the screen test. I think the best corollary to that scene is actually probably Naomi Watts's scene in Mulholland Drive. Sure, yep. Where that's she's another getting one. her big screen test. And I think the difference here is that in that scene we are clearly supposed to see her betty in mulholland drive become almost possessed and truly crush it as that character and make herself and her talents known and here i think you can have it both ways a little bit meaning there's still talent there there's still someone who clearly is doing something that is unique and interesting, but she hasn't by any stretch at that point in her career figured out who she is yet as a performer. And she's still trying her way through it. That's why she even says, can I, can I have another go? Can I try to play it again? Even after she gives so much of what she gives in that moment, the real point of that scene, I think of course, isn't so much to show that, Oh man, is she an incredible talent, the best actress who ever lived in that moment. Anyway, it's not about that. It's more about what she's trying to do and the discrepancy of the response to that. And again, how sort of ahead of her time she maybe even was a little bit with that approach to acting. But I'll go back as well to the seven year itch scene and just mention that that moment when she stands on the grate. Now, here are the layers to this in this film. This is Norma Jean as Marilyn, as that character in that scene. Mm -hmm. And she, in that moment when the steam comes up through the gate, is expressing a sense of joy that is undeniable. Now, is that just the character's joy, or is Marilyn, the actress, also feeling it in that moment? I felt like that. I felt that we were also seeing that. And what's interesting is the way... Dominic decides to take these key moments and break them down. I was thinking, of course, about biopics a lot watching this film. And all biopics typically are is they are filling in the blanks 
around the markers that define who these people are in the public consciousness. And what's interesting about Marilyn, maybe not unique to Marilyn, because there are other artists who have gotten a biopic treatment who are actors and actresses, though maybe none as iconic as Marilyn Monroe. For Marilyn, the markers, those touchstones, they're all visual, right? How many times watching this film did you either outright recognize an iconic pose or recreation of an iconic scene? And how many times did you feel deja vu as if you had seen it before? You maybe couldn't place it, but something about a certain look, her curls falling just a certain way. You're thinking, what cover was that? I know I've seen that yeah, before. That's, that's the I precision, was, not only of the performance, but the filmmaking. But the filmmaking and, of course, let's say the costume design, exactly. the makeup, yeah. all of those things. But I think it's more than that, too, Josh. I think that that is Diarmas, as I see it anyway. That is not her technical proficiency. I didn't think about her as doing a Marilyn Monroe impression really accurately at all. What stayed with me and really struck me as impressive was the way she truly seemed to capture a spirit. I felt that she was invoking that sense of deja vu by somehow channeling an essence. There's something spooky about this performance. And even in a movie that is determined to portray Marilyn as a victim, for me, DeArmas brings an intensity and an intellect and enough humanity behind all that punishment she's experiencing to Marilyn that made her a compelling figure. Well, that, maybe that's where it pushes it over the top for you. I, I think it might be it might be the the deciding factor where the film might not work for me. I was also curious to ask what you thought about its reliance on this idea of the daddy issues. You know, even from the very early scenes of her as a child uh, with Julianne Nicholson as her quite unhinged mother, um, you know, who puts this picture of a debonair looking man above their bed and says, this is your father. Uh, someday he'll come back for you. He's a very important man in Hollywood. And then that picture even reoccurs throughout in these fantasy sequences. At one point, it's animated and the man in the photo, I forget if he says something or at least is moving. It comes back at the very end of the film, at the end of Monroe's life. And, you know, I think this movie is not only interested in that. The dichotomy you mentioned between Norma Jean and Marilyn is is one of the other things it does explore. But man, like a lot of biopics it uses that as sort of a master key in a mm -hmm. way that I found a bit reductive. It's helpful in that romantic triangle because those are two men, sons, as you said, of former stars who are dealing with the legacy of fathers in a way. And she's dealing with the non-legacy of a father, the mystery of a father. And that's one of the things they connect over. So I think it's helpful there. But I did find it coming back over and over again. You know, and repeating the way she calls the the men in her life who she gets involved with daddy and things like that as being a, a, a bit reductive in that way biopics can usually, a trap biopics can usually fall into. There's no doubt it's reductive. I think the movie overall is undeniably reductive. And it's more about how it takes that very loose, simple idea of her psychology and, I'll use the word, exploits it brings it to life and immerses us in it. That doesn't mean I'm saying it's 
entirely effective or I appreciated that experience of being immersed in it, Josh. But there's no doubt I'm agreeing with you. It's reductive. Here's where I will counter a little bit and say it works in terms of the overall scheme of the film. And that's this idea of the split between fantasy and reality and the projection of an image onto her and also onto herself. And what I mean is every single one of those relationships, it makes sense that this character who does not know how to live as her normal self and is at war between these two sides of herself throughout the entire movie, there's this constant conflict. It makes sense that she would be someone who in these relationships would project an image onto them and put them in a role that they need to fulfill in her life that she's lacking. And similarly, they do it to her. In every single case, one of those men, Joe DiMaggio does it, kind of Ali's character. I think even those two legacy boys that she's in a relationship with do it. Certainly Arthur Miller does it by recasting her as his Magda. They all want to utilize the fantasy of Marilyn and mold and shape her in some way, just like the public does to her every time they go to one of her movies or they consume her in some way. And these men consume her in a similar fashion. So that that conflict, that push and pull of them exploiting her, but her also needing to exploit them is something that at least makes sense in terms of the scope of this film. Let me say one more thing on a positive note to, to balance out some of my critiques here. But I mentioned, described this as being lush, and the cinematography is certainly key to that. Cinematographer here uh, is Chase Irvin. A couple of times in the movie, one thing that really captures, again, this dichotomy you first brought up from Norma Jean and Marilyn is when the high contrast lighting, it's connected to the title of the film, right? Mm -hmm. Overwhelms the screen. But it starts, it seems to almost emanate from that hair and just suggesting that this blondness, which is Marilyn Monroe, is completely overwhelming Norma yes. Jean. So there are a lot of flourishes we could point out to to capture the psychology going on here. And I do think many of them are impressive. Some are overwrought and some are ostentatious in a way that works. This one, this one really worked for me. There's at least maybe two or three times it happens, but each time it just envelops you in a way that captures both her iconic stardom and what's blinding about that mm -hmm. and the claustrophobic nature of it for her personally. So one that's an aesthetic flourish that I did appreciate quite a bit. It's a bright, shining light, and it gives you this notion of stardom and something remarkable about her, and it also is almost literally incendiary. It feels dangerous. It feels like she, I'm going to use that word again, is about to be consumed by that light. Blonde goes into limited release on the 23rd before coming exclusively to Netflix on the 28th. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Billy Wilder does make an appearance in Blonde. One of his most acclaimed films, Double Indemnity, closes out our Barbara Stanwyck Marathon when we come back. Plus, our Marathon Awards and a new film spotting poll asking you to pick the funniest live-action comedy of the past 10 years. Stay with us. Marilyn Monroe didn't marry Henry Miller. Marilyn Monroe didn't marry Henry Miller.
your year, it's your show. We here will follow you to hell and back, but this is on you. Stand up to the big bad bullies out there and work them into the ground. You are some of the best hockey players in the state, which puts you as some of the best hockey players in the country. Let's go on there. That's from the trailer for the new documentary Hockeyland, which is currently playing in limited release. Set in Minnesota's North Country, the unofficial capital of U.S. hockey, it documents a year in the life of players, coaches, and families on two rival high school hockey teams. Adam, you caught up with this one. You know a little bit about hockey. What did you think? Yeah, full disclosure, first of all, the producer of this film, one of the producers, Andrew Sherburn, is someone who I've gotten to know over the years. He's the executive director of the great film scene cinemas in Iowa City. And he was on the show once, I think back in 2017. He co-produced and co-directed a movie called Saving Britain that we talked about. And as I said, he's back here as a producer. The co-director on that film, Tommy Haynes, is the director of Hockeyland. He comes originally from this Minnesota Iron Range area. And... Grew up immersed in the hockey culture there. I'm happy for Andrew that the movie last weekend at the box office, I think on 75 screens, was the number one documentary in terms of gross. And I can understand why people are responding to it. Audiences and critics so far, the overall feedback has been very positive. And I'll tell you, as you're watching this film, that really is about these two teams and the players on these teams, a little bit of a David versus a Goliath scenario. And you feel as if you know where the documentary might be heading in terms of them facing off against each other. There is a moment late in this film, Josh, of pure elation that had me pounding my fist in the air and saying yes out loud, like I was watching the Blackhawks win a Stanley Cup. And there's a moment in this film of utter agony that had me groaning and about to throw my remote control at the TV as if the Blackhawks had just lost in Game 7. And it's not because I have any investment whatsoever in Minnesota State High School hockey or these teams, but because the movie does make me care about and make me invested in the people. The kids who are on these teams, the kids in particular, that the movie is following. There's a group of four or five, the coaches, the parents. You see what this means to them. And not only the fleetingness of this time that may be, for some of these kids, the best time of their lives. They may never have anything better than this moment, being part of this team and hopefully bringing glory to their school and their family and their town. But it's also fleeting that the movie touches on how one of these schools, Eveleth, is evolving itself. And it's going to be merging with a larger school in the near future. And this great tradition is going to be something that is a thing of the past. So there's there's trying to kind of hang on to that and also make one last push. And Tommy Haynes, the director here and his crew, they understand how evocative this setting is minnesota these prairies these frozen ponds these small towns and not just the way they can look when you shoot them the right way but the sounds too hockey's a very oral sport from the taping of the sticks to the slap of the puck 
the hitting of the boards, the skates, of course, along the ice, you name it, you know exactly what hockey is. You can conjure the game in your head just from the sounds of it. And you take that and you mix it with the sounds of the snow tires along those small town streets and the scraping of the windshield. The movie knows that it's about a lot more than hockey itself. And I would say that if you're someone who doesn't care about the sport at all, even better, because really fundamentally, this movie is about the people and you're going to be exposed to a culture and a way of life that is something that is unfamiliar to you. And so like with any really good documentary, you're going to learn something new. Yeah, emphasizing the sound makes a ton of sense. I am not a hockey aficionado. The only Blackhawks game I've been to is with you. You took me a couple years ago. We had great seats. And as you're describing that, I can hear every, just about every one of those things. So that makes sense. And I could see how that could be effective in the documentary. Hockeyland is expanding to 140 plus screens around the country this weekend. So more people listening will have a chance to see it. I believe it's going to be available on demand in October. Next week on Film Spotting, a movie I'm actually going to be seeing at Film Scene in Iowa City. It's Gina Prince Bythewood's The Woman King, starring Viola Davis. That hits theaters this weekend. And I know there's been a little bit of discussion about it in our Slack. I'm a little behind Josh, so maybe you can fill me in on where we stand with our producer, Sam. We were looking at doing a top five focused on movie queens, not only, of course, inspired by Viola Davis in The Woman King, but the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. Is that still where we're at? I think that's where we're at. The question is, how rich of a subject is this? And whether or not we have too many picks in common and we might do a joint list. I don't know. Every once in a while, we do joint lists for various reasons. That might be the case here. I have a preliminary list that I'm quite happy with. There's some Great choices, but if you have a similar one, maybe we'll have to team up on this. We'll, we'll have to discuss that, but yeah, I am I am excited about getting to do this topic. We also wanted to take a moment here to recognize the passing of a legend. Jean-Luc Godard, the French filmmaker, new wave pioneer, died earlier this week, 91 years old, director of dozens of features and countless more short films. You can absolutely say he's among the most influential artists of the 20th century and just look at the features he made the volume and the quality of films he made even just between 1960 and 67 we're talking about films like breathless and virus of v and contempt and band of outsiders pierre lefou alphaville masculine feminine weekends another one i remember studying and having to write a paper about in film school as a film student whether you're studying to make films or you're studying to write about and examine and talk about films, you are going to reckon with Godard. You're going to reckon with him early. As I said on Twitter, I really figured out what the quote unquote rules of cinema were by watching Godard break them. Sure. You know, you hear about it, you know what classical Hollywood is doing, or you you're starting to understand the vocabulary of it, but it really doesn't fully crystallize until you see someone say, okay, I'm going to now subvert all of that. I'm going to throw it all on its head. That's when it really clicks. You even think of something like Breathless, which is one of the first ones of his I saw, and that really is a deconstruction of the 
romantic comedy, romantic drama, and then a reassembling of it. It's like breaking those pieces. Yeah. Uh, this this is how I think of a lot of the French New Wave, really, not just Godard, but you know, taking what was had become traditional cinema up to that point, about the mid-century, taking it all apart with reverence and appreciation, you know, not smashing it, but mm-hmm. disassembling it with reverence and then seeing, but what would it look like this way? What if we what if we edited like in breath in breathless with these jump cuts and instead of cutting from one person's face to the other person in the scene what if we just stayed on that face from a slightly imperceptibly different angle what does that say about the character our perception of it all these sorts of things you know godard was at the head of kind of pioneering and he's also a filmmaker by no means am i a completist some have suggested he'd be a great marathon at some point. That's true. But I still feel like even if we did that marathon, even if we went beyond that and saw everything, I would never fully comprehend what no. this guy was up to. Part of that is just because he's infinitely smarter than me. But the ideas jam-packed into these, particularly his later movies, things like 2014's Goodbye to Language or in 1998, his History of Cinema, the, these films that directly explored the ideas behind movie making itself. It just gets so thick, so complicated, mm-hmm. yet still so provocative that it would be well worth my while, but I don't know if I'd ever say I've quite got a handle on Godard. Breathless, not just Hollywood romantic films, but also gangster movies. Mm-hmm. Clearly another genre he is having some fun with, and also deconstructing. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, you can hear part two of their gin expression pairing, 3,000 Years of Longing with 1940s The Thief of Baghdad, directed by Alexander Korda. The Next Picture Show looks at cinema's present via its past. Your hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. We encourage you to listen every week. They post new episodes on Tuesdays wherever you get your podcasts. You dismiss what he does that's playful or imaginative. You could afford to be a little encouraging. She should have been a concert piano player. What she got in her heart is what you got. You can't just love something, you also have to take care of it. It's more important than your hobby. Can you stop calling it a hobby? That's from the trailer for one of the most anticipated movies of the fall, Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. It comes to theaters on November 23rd. Early word coming out of its premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. Josh, very positive to rapturous, I'd say. I think so. I mean, this is one of those when I see the title come up as I'm scrolling letterbox, I, I kind of scroll quicker because I don't even want to see the star ratings. But from what I've glimpsed, yeah, a lot of a lot of four star ratings, it looks like. A couple weeks back, we asked you, what is your most anticipated fall movie, fall for film spotting, being Labor Day up to Thanksgiving? And we gave you these options. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Blonde, Don't Worry Darling, The Fablemans, or other you could write in your choice how did it come out josh other is in last place with 11 percent. then don't worry darling we're going to add to the bad press adam only 19 percent of the vote black panther wakanda forever received 20 percent. blonde got 22 percent, but the fablemans took it with 27 percent. here's john kissel being a member of the jesse james hive means paying homage to andrew dominic whenever the opportunity presents itself I can't wait to see what Dominic does with another American icon. Of course, our 
previous topic, Marilyn Monroe. Here's Andrea Weaver. I've come to the conclusion that I am a pathetic robot-brained follower of anything and everything Marvel and cannot, for the life of me, deviate from that. However, Black Panther Wakanda Forever is one of their better-looking films and one that carries the beautiful and heartbreaking legacy of Chadwick Boseman, so I don't feel quite as lame picking it as my most anticipated fall movie, Wakanda Forever. Jeremy Webna Berman says, I was going to vote for Don't Worry Darling, but with all the drama surrounding it, it sounds like it's going to be a mess. So I'm writing in Martin McDonough's fourth feature, The Banshees of Inisherin. McDonough reuniting with Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson can only go well, and being set in their native Ireland is very exciting. This is a film that also debuted to raves at Toronto, has a high Metacritic score, comes to theaters 1021, even absolute Martin McDonough hater or I'll specify whoa, three whoa, billboards. Whoa, not you, Josh. Whoa. Not you. Three billboards <laughs> hater Melissa Taminga. Oh, okay. <laughs> I saw on Letterboxd. I think it was Letterboxd and not Twitter said that, yeah, she still hates that movie, but this one's really good. <laughs> good to know. Melissa has an open mind, as I do as well. Very much looking forward to this one. All right, this next comment, I swear it's not me. It really does come from John in Orlando. With all due acknowledgement that The Fablemans is a new Spielberg and thus an event, my answer is absolutely Wendell and Wild. A new stop-motion animated feature from Henry Selleck, his first since The Great Coraline, starring the voices of Key and Peele. That's a must-see ASAP for me, and I'm pretty sure I coined that expression. When Dolan Wilde hits Netflix on October 28th, Tanner Hoisington in Augsburg, Germany, says my fall movie question would be, thank you, Tanner. You can help us out in the future. Send your questions in. We might steal them. Can Park Chan-wook ride the current Korean pop culture wave to gain the same level of recognition in the West as Bong Joon-ho that he deserves? He's referencing a film that came up during my top five fall movie questions. Park's decision to leave that comes out in limited release on October 14th. Faithful trivia spotter Ross Bratton also weighed in on this poll. I'm intrigued by these and several other films, but I voted other to spotlight Moon Age Daydream. I absolutely love David Bowie's music, and the early buzz on the film has been that it truly captures his spirit. I'm excited to see it in IMAX, and I'm ready for Brett Morgan's psychedelic exploration of a unique musical genius's life and work. Moon Age Daydream, that's coming out in limited release this weekend. Yeah, I'm excited to see that one, too. Corey Kraft in Birmingham, Alabama, Roll Tide, says, I'm voting for Tar, the great Todd Field's first film since 06. As excited as I am for all the other movies in this poll, I feel like I know more or less what they're going to be, given Tar's dizzying trailers. I have no idea what to expect, making it more exciting. So that's my answer. Tar opens limited on October 7th, comes to Chicago October 14th. Another topic for my top five fall movie questions among my most anticipated of the fall. And Josh, this also affords me an opportunity to bring out the corrections department. Oh, I don't remember. I don't remember which family member it was off the top of my head. I apologize, but they were aghast that I multiple times referred to Todd field as Todd fields and film spotting does regret the air. In my defense, I haven't said the guy's name since 2006, so I called him Fields, but it is it is singular, Todd Field. And we should probably clarify then for, for listening ears that you were using the possessive earlier when possessive. you were quoting Corey. Todd yes. Field's first, first film. film. Okay. Yes. I'm glad. I hope everyone has that. Yeah. I do even more regret the air when I look at our interviews archive and note that Todd Field 
was an early guest on Film Spotting. Had a wonderful conversation with him back in 06 about little children. He's never going to come poll- back after your faux pas now. <laughs> <laughs> Our new poll looks ahead to nothing in particular, just the existential longing for laughter, Josh. The question is, what is the funniest, funniest live action comedy of the past 10 years. This was inspired by Nicholas Stoller's Bros coming out with Billy Eichner. We've also got John Hamm reviving the Chevy Chase role as Fletch in Confess Fletch. And oh my, did it warm my heart to see Matt Singer give this a very positive review the other day. I am excited for Confess Fletch. For this poll, we tried to narrow it down to conventional comedies. There always has to be criteria, right? No action comedies, no romantic comedies, no dramedies, no superhero or animated comedies. There's also no comedies by people like the Coen Brothers or Wes Anderson or PTA. Why is that, Josh? Um, We just don't want them to win the poll easily, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Or as Sam puts it, we just decided that they're different and by different, we mean better. So there's no Hail Caesar, there's no Moonrise Kingdom, there's no Grand Budapest, there's no Inherent Vice. Those are the types of films we are excluding. Maybe you could call them auteur comedies. So your options then, Josh, are. Well, speaking of Matt Singer, the world's foremost barb and star go to Vista Del Mar proselytizer. That uh-huh. is one of our options, a very worthy one. Olivia Wilde's Book Smart with Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver. You could also go in that direction. How about Game Night? Rachel McAdams, Jason Bateman, Girls Trip starring Tiffany Haddish and Queen Latifah, pop star Never Stop Never Stopping, Andy Samberg, of course, in that one. We're going to throw in The Trip to Italy with Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon. And two more options here, Armando Iannucci's The Death of Stalin. I think you might be heading that direction, Adam. We'll see. Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clements, What We Do in the Shadows is the last option, aside from, of course, other, if you want to write in. This is a tough one. In a Twitter version of the poll that Sam posted earlier this week, he kept it to only three options. That was pop star, game night, and what we do in the shadows. What we do in the shadows was in the lead. Some other popular write-ins that came in were the nice guys with Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling. Sam says that's ineligible. No action comedy. So they didn't get the memo that he didn't express on Twitter. David Wayne's They Came Together with Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler. Also, Edgar Wright's The World's End. I know that's one we were considering for our very big list. A lot of options to choose from, a lot of really funny movies and good movies to choose from. Josh, do you have a clear winner? No, in no way do I have a clear winner. I mean, most I of these I've given three and a half out of four stars to on my site. Um <sighs> It's probably going to be between what we do in the shadows and game night. And just because both of those have gags that as soon as I hear that, the title immediately come to mind, I'm going to go with game night. I just, yeah, it's game night. I'm not going to explain it. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> yeah. That's a good approach for comedy. I'm you don't explain comedy, Adam. Yeah, you just I'm appreciate it. It comes down to the last four options for me. Pop star trip to Italy, death of Stalin, what we do in the shadows. Death of Stalin might be my favorite film of the bunch. It might be the best film of the bunch. I think it's the only one that made a top 10 list for me in its given year. The trip to Italy, though, might be my favorite of those four. But in terms of volume of laughs, yeah. pop star and what we do in the shadows are really battling that out, Josh. So I got to pick the funniest. And 
even though it could be between those two films and probably should be, I think about how hard, how hard I laugh at the trip to Italy. Mm-mm. Don't, yeah. Adam. That's where, That's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. That's where my one vote is going. I can't pick pick between Pop Star and what we do in the shadows. You laughed harder. You laughed harder at the trip to Italy. Yeah, I think I did. You probably did. (laughs) You can vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. See what I mean, Walter? Sure, I got good eyesight. You mean you want him to have the policy without him knowing it. And that means without the insurance company knowing that he doesn't know it. That's a setup, isn't it? Is there anything wrong with it? No, I think it's lovely. Then if some dark, wet night, that crown block did fall on him. What crown block? Only sometimes it can't quite make it on its own. It has to have a little help. I don't know what you're talking about. Of course, it doesn't have to be a crown block. It can be a car backing over and we could fall out of the upstairs window. Any little thing like that, just so it's a morgue job. Are you crazy? Not that crazy. Goodbye, Mrs. Dietrichson. What's the matter? Look, baby, you can't get away with it. Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck there in 1944's Double Indemnity, directed by Billy Wilder, written by Wilder and Raymond Chandler, based on a story by James and Kane. How about all of that? It's the sixth and final film in our Summer of Stanwyck marathon. Stanwyck keeping things steamy. Adam, even as we get into fall here and summer falls behind us, still pretty steamy thanks to Stanwyck. Double Indemnity, it turns out, kind of a perfect bookend for this marathon. We began with 1933's notorious pre-code Babyface. That does have Stanwyck in femme fatale mode. She's playing a determined social climber, Lily Powers, who seduces and then disposes of one man after another. Here she is, just a little over a decade later, as one of film noir's preeminent femme fatales, Phyllis Dietrichson, seducing men, knocking off her husband, kind of come full circle here. A quick plot summary for the double indemnity uninitiated. We meet McMurray's insurance salesman, Walter Neff, at the beginning of the film, confessing to a crime, not to the police, but via dictaphone to his superior at the Pacific All-Risk Insurance Company. It's claims manager Barton Keyes, who's played wonderfully by Edward G. Robinson. In flashbacks, we see McMurray's introduction to Stanwyck's Phyllis, a woman who has, it appears, grown tired of life with her wealthy but controlling husband and his grown daughter by a first marriage. Against Walter's better judgment, he and Phyllis are soon setting out to commit the perfect crime, getting the husband to unwittingly purchase a life insurance policy that will pay out big when he dies, and doubly big if he dies the right way. Josh, Double Indemnity is one of my all-time favorite films. You had never seen it before this week, and while I am truly desperate to know what you thought of it, I'm going to give the floor for a moment to listener Albert Malafront, who wrote us this. I felt compelled to write in because you are covering my favorite movie of all time on this week's show, Double Indemnity. I could go on and on about everything from Wilder's direction, visual delights like that incredible opening shot of the mysterious man in crutches advancing towards the camera, or how about the amazing Edward G. Robinson supporting performance? But seeing that this is a Stanwyck marathon, I'd love to hear this question discussed. Is Barbara's Phyllis Dietrichson the greatest femme fatale ever? Mariah Gates beat me to this when she was on the show a couple weeks ago, but she describes Dietrichson as peak femme fatale, and I couldn't agree more. Despite knowing at the start the doomed inevitability of how this story is going to unfold, I find the central seduction with Neff more engrossing, heartbreaking, and sexy than any other film of this era. I completely believe why Neff gets wrapped up in it the way that he does, and it really is because Stanwyck is an absolute force. I love noir, but nothing in the genre comes close to this in terms of passion and chemistry, so would love to hear your thoughts regarding how she ranks as a femme fatale. Is she indeed peak 
femme fatale. Also, another burning question, why is this not in the Pantheon? <laughs> Take it away, Josh. <laughs> Tell me, please, whether or not you agree with Mariah and with Albert and... Tell me if you, if not agree with me that it's one of the best films ever made, do you at least maybe now understand where I'm coming from? Oh, for sure. I mean, let's put it in the Pantheon. Loved this. It was fantastic. Uh, I do want to table uh, Albert's main question here about the femme fatale ranking okay. and, and, and how that relationship plays out in the movie, because it might be one of the areas I possibly have. A critique, but I don't want to start with that because I loved this so much. Let's stick to Stanwick, though. No surprise. The main reason I probably did love this. What a thrill, once again, to watch her go to work and assert her dominance. What an entrance. I mean, at this point, moviegoers had likely been accustomed to knowing what they were going to get from a Stanwick performance. And this does not disappoint when Neff shows up at her door to renew her husband's auto policy and Phyllis answers the door wearing nothing but a towel. Right. And, and it's even trumped because that's maybe an expected thing with a femme fatale character. Sure. But then when she comes down the stairs after changing, I like how she's still buttoning her blouse. Love it. You know, it's just like Mm -hmm. you could have taken 10 more seconds, right? Phyllis, then more of the physicality that Stanwyck always brings to her performances. She sits in that chair in the parlor with a slinkiness. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are things going on between her and that chair that we shouldn't be witnessing. <laughs> I don't know how she does it because she's not yeah. really moving. It's just how she sinks into it so that the chair is caressing her as as Neff watches. And, um, you know, there's more to the performance than that. However, I do think once the murder plot kicks in, we get to see additional layers. This is, that's the sort of stuff that as good as it is, and as few actresses could do it that well, you feel like Stanwyck could probably do in her sleep, but we get more layers as the movie proceeds. And the one scene I do want to highlight is the murder scene. Actually, They're driving, right? She's driving her husband. So they're both in the front seat and Neff is hiding in the back seat. And he rises up. Neff rises up from behind to choke her husband, played by Tom Powers. Wilder cuts to a close-up for this of Phyllis, of Stanwyck, as the deed is being done, holds it for a couple seconds. And what she gives us there is an expression that is eerily blank, which is disturbing because you Mm -hmm. want to see some level of emotion, distress, concern, even if it's amoral, it's just like, are we going to get caught? She doesn't give us that, but somehow, and I'd have to watch it a number of times to see what it exactly is, you sense some deep-seated terror going on in there, which is different than surface-level panic about getting caught, those other things I'm talking about. And so I think Stanwyck is doing the sort of work that, in the context of this marathon particularly, we probably expected but giving us even more than that in her portrayal of Phyllis Dietrichson. She's remarkable. And this is a film filled with remarkable elements. I don't know that Stanwyck's performance as Phyllis is the thing that elevates this film, but it's all of those component parts working together. Wilder and the writing here with Chandler, they know just what they're after and they get it from Stanwyck, they get it, I think, from McMurray as well. And I'm going to talk more about that scene, Josh, the murder scene a bit later when we get to our awards. But that blank stare you touch on, 
that's where I think you can probably put Stanwick up there as peak femme fatale in that there is a coldness to her and there's an edge to her that she doesn't really soften. It's as if Stanwick understands that Phyllis, no matter how good of an actress she is, and she puts on a performance. There are times, right? Oh, I hate him, Walter. He's so mean to me. He abuses me. She puts on a performance in the way she comes on to Walter and how much she claims to love him. But it's almost as if Stanwick understands that Phyllis, in her soul, refuses to be a victim. And she cannot play that part. And when that murder happens, I'll unpack it a little bit more later, but when that murder happens, when other scenes happen between her and Walter, more exchanges where you understand really her motivation and her psychology and where she was starting from and hoping to get to, you realize that she is, I'll use a word I've used previously in the show, there is a sinister quality to her that I think does make Phyllis stand out from even other femme fatales. Yeah, sinister is is exactly the right word. The revelations you get to her character, and but they're not, you know, there's wiggle room too. There's enough of a question to wonder, because you hear about these things, her past, her relationship with her now husband's ex-wife as his as the nurse to her. You hear those third hand. And so you start to wonder, as Neff does, how deep does the sinister quality go in this mm-hmm. woman? And how deep am I? And will I ever be able to get out? So that it's a great word to describe this character. Wilder and Chandler, you know, in the, in this screenplay here, I, I would say this is more of a noir in terms of the plot and the language. The language is such a delight. The exchanges between the two of them and even in Neff's uh, recordings to this, uh, you know, that he's giving to the Edward G. Robinson character. The narration of that just has an incredible, he's storytelling, you know, in a way mm-hmm. that fits the character, but also just makes it so fun to listen to. It's essentially a voiceover, and sometimes those can be leaned on too heavily. It is leaned on here. It's the entire structure of the movie, but I think the writing does that well. It's maybe not so much a noir for me visually, although, as Albert mentioned, the opening credits are fantastic with this silhouette figure and the crutches coming at you menacingly. And you don't know, if you haven't seen it before, what that means, what is going on. And in terms of the filmmaking, I do want to call out uh, two echoing shots that worked really well for me. And the one comes fairly early on where it's Phyllis, it's Neff, and it's Phyllis's husband. At this point, Neff is getting him to sign the insurance papers that are part of their part of their con, part of their scam. And we see Phyllis in the background of the shot framed in the foreground are Neff and her husband. And she's just watching. It, it speaks to what you were talking about, Adam. In retrospect, it's when you first watch it, you see, you sense like it's a point of suspense. Are they going to get him to sign the papers, right? But in retrospect, it's such a sinister shot because she's mm-hmm. slightly higher than the two of them right? as well in the frame. And then this is echoed uh, later on here with the shot of Neff. This is in the insurance offices. Neff is in the background this time, in the middle, placed between a witness and the Edward G. Robinson character, the insurance investigator. 
And he, at this point, is getting pinched, where she was in a powerful position before. At this point, we see he's getting pinched by those two figures. So just a little bit of filmmaking. I don't know how intentional it was to mirror those two. Probably was, knowing Wilder, um, but was just so effective to me. So even though this is not maybe the noiriest looking of noirs in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, I do think there are some crucial decisions like that, which which jump right out at you. No, you nailed it. The slinkiness of the way she's positioned in the chair, the way that dynamic changes when she's in that chair at the end of the film and they're having a different type of exchange, the imbalance of people standing and sitting, the imbalance of people who are tall and people who are not. I am going to talk more about this in a second. It all matters. It is all intentional in this film. And I do want to go back to that opening credit shadow that Albert mentioned and that you mentioned as well, Josh. First time I watched Double Indemnity wasn't something that even stood out to me. I just sort of took it for granted as an opening credit sequence. And it was only actually as I started to unpack more and more what this film really to me is about and the themes and ideas that Wilder is exploring, did I realize how intentional even that was. That it's not just a little bit of creative license to have a more dramatic opening, to do something that's a little bit more expressionistic like you'd expect from noir. No, there is even in that opening something intentional. There's something in terms of the mood and even an idea that Wilder is just planting. He's planting the seed for it right there. And I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to what I think that seed is. But the shadow shot itself is something on this viewing I never noticed before how much Wilder goes back to it. And there's a part of me that wants to acknowledge that, well, it's noir. And even if it's not as dark or as bleak or as stark in terms of the black and white and the shadows as a lot of others, this is California after all, right? I mean, that's also one of the elements Wilder's exploring here is it's gorgeous, sunny California, but behind these closed doors, all these sinister things are are taking place. But there's a veneer that everything is even and good and cheery. And every time Walter walks out that door of the house, as he leaves, that same shadow figure that opens the film is there on the wall and gets imprinted on the wall. It's Very deliberate to me, Josh, that it's as if every moment he comes into that house and he leaves, he's getting himself closer and closer to being that that imposing, scary, almost zombie like doomed figure. And Wilder says, I'm going to make sure that the lighting is set up a certain way so that every time he exits that door, that shadow is cast large on the wall behind him. Well, and it's also the sense he is the shadow, but the shadow's pursuing him, right? Just like in that opening credits, it's pursuing us. It's coming towards the camera at us. And so in those echoing shots you're talking about, it's it's coming after him, which is what fairly soon into the movie we realize is happening here. My favorite single visual moment, though, in this film is a transition. And it goes back to the anklet. And this here, again, is just pure, wilder, directing genius. The moment when he sees her. Elevation, again, there's a discrepancy. He's looking up at her. She's up high. She's in an exalted position at that point. But she's hidden. 
The camera is even obscured. We we see that she's wearing a towel, but we can't get a glimpse of her full body, just like Walter can't. You want to see it, just like Walter does, right? And then when she comes down, the fact that we see the anklet first, we see the legs first, and she is still, as you noted, buttoning up her shirt. She could have waited. She chose not to. Very intentional to further get her hooks and the imagination going for Walter. But how about the moment, Josh, when he says in his narration something like, I couldn't stop thinking about that anklet. And we cut back to the leg, the anklet, going down the stairs. And for a split second, you think he's remembering it. It's, it's like a flashback in his head of the thing he's talking about, except it's not. It's her coming down the stairs again the next time he shows up at the house. Mm-hmm. Just a beautiful bit of, of editing there and, and connecting those two scenes. But for me, why this film is among my all-time favorites, it's so many of these things we've talked about. It's the performance by Stanwyck. It's the noir dialogue and the delivery. It's the Sunset Boulevard approach in terms of the structure which I think is really bold, starting with that fatalism. We know where it's going to go. We know how this ends up, and it's bad. It's not about that. It's about how we got there and why. And the surprises along the way. Because as much as Albert talked about the relationship between Phyllis and Walter, for me, the real genius of this movie is that Wilder pulls a fast one on the audience. He's got a character who says that he committed this murder and he did this whole thing for money and for a girl. And it turns out he didn't really do it at all for money and a girl. Those were elements, but that's not really why he did it. And not only that, it's a film noir where he's got this relationship with this sultry woman. But what's the real love story here? This is a love story between two men. This is about the relationship fundamentally double indemnity is about the relationship between Walter Neff and Barton keys, the only real love of Walter's life and the larger philosophical implications of that relationship. Why does he do it? As he says to her in one key scene, and he's starting to grab her so tight as he's saying it, that she even says, Walter, you're hurting me. He's not getting turned on by her he's not even getting turned on by the thought of committing the crime itself he's getting turned on by what it will mean if he can pull this off that walter neff 35 years old or whatever he says no visible scars the plainest boringest blandest everyday guy who nobody pays any attention to and doesn't remember When he walks through the door and walks out the door, he's eminently forgettable. He is going to make his mark. He is going to pull off something unthinkable. He's going to make this crime work and he's going to get paid out. It's going to be perfect, as he says, right down the line. Well, the only way to do that is to fool Keys. And fooling Keys is the thing the movie sets up as the true impossibility. So, their relationship and the way that he constantly, he even says at one point sarcastically because Keyes has just taken him down a peg. He says, I love you too. But he actually says, I love you too. Every time he lights the cigar for him, he lights the cigar for him. And that's Neff's way of saying, I love you too. And at the end, of course, that's mirrored and reversed by Keyes lighting his 
cigarette. But it's about that relationship. And as I said, that larger idea of Walter Neff setting out to do something that ambitious, misguided and immoral, but that ambitious. And that's where all the stuff with the height comes into, right? That, that looming shadow figure getting closer and closer and larger and larger. And all the talk about the little man, Barton Keys, a little man with another little man inside him. That's the conscience, right? And Walter's this tall guy. And what does he even say to him? He says at one point, I thought you were smarter, Walter. You're just taller. And, and Wilder plays with this in other ways, Josh, even at the, at the Mart, the grocery store where they meet and have their clandestine conversations. What happens in one scene? A woman interrupts their conversation because she asks him to grab something off the top shelf. And she even says, I love it. She even says, I don't know why they put the things I want just out of my reach. This is, this is life. That's, that's not just a throwaway moment. This is like the things you want are always just out of your reach. And guess what? Walter's tall enough to grab them. Walter's tall enough to grab him. And even he, he says to him later, too, about his insurance sales reports. He says, you're high man on the board. There's throughout this film, you can catalog again and again all the references to big man, little man, tall, short. But that idea of being a big man by doing something and accomplishing something that an average person can't. And it's, it's built into every aspect, every fiber of who Walter Neff is. You know, he's that forgettable. He's that ignorable. Josh, so much so that even though he's hiding himself, he's obscuring himself, nobody on the train notices anything about him. And even the guy who interacts with him later only has a faint sense of maybe we've met before and otherwise walks right out. It's, it's so ingrained into every aspect of who Walter is. The very reason why he's committing this crime altogether is tied inextricably to who he is as a man. You thought you had a cold, didn't you? All wrapped up in tissue paper with pink ribbons around it. It was perfect. Except it wasn't because you made one mistake. Just one little mistake. When it came to picking the killer, you picked the wrong guy. You want to know who killed Dietrichson? Hold tight to that cheap cigar of yours, Keys. I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff. Insurance salesman. 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. Well, the decisive factor for him, for Walter Neff, in actually going through with this, he says as much at one point. I think he's, he tells Keys this when he's recording yep. his story is because he'd always wondered if he could get away with it. Can you beat the house? And yeah, yeah it's, yes, it's her. It's the money, but he, he rejects those two initially, right? He sets them aside. He tells mm -hmm. her, you're crazy. This won't yeah. work. What is it that pulls him back in? In a lot of ways, it's not her. It's this thing he's always had, which speaks to your comments about his relationship with keys, this wondering it, would there be a way to get one over on keys mm -hmm. and could I do it? And that's why he actually he actually tries it. So so yeah, it makes sense to frame the movie in that way. And you know how far you want to take it in terms of a, a romantic loving relationship, or I'm not. yeah, you you're not. 
No. Okay. No, I'm not suggesting because if anything you did, it would be interesting. Yeah. You know, in a way, doing this, especially with her, would be cheating on keys if you put it in those terms, right? Sure. To try to pull this off is essentially cheating on keys, whether as a um, you know a, a romantic partner or a colleague. So, all right. So since. It's interesting that the emphasis for you is on those two, because I think that is um, an incredibly rich relationship that the movie is clearly interested in. The amount of scenes they give to those two and and those lines that they Mm -hmm. repeat to each other and come back and forth. And if there's one thing that did hold me back a little bit is not about Stanwyck being a femme fatale, but... Um, who her partner was in the femme fatale department. I think McMurray is good here. Uh, I think he's quite good and captures a lot of those qualities you were just describing, this this everyman um, who's going to reach a little bit further than he probably should despite his stature. But when Albert said in his comment about um, nothing in the genre comes close to this in terms of passion and chemistry, I just wanted a little bit more of that. Adam, I thought it, a little bit more of that would have nudged double indemnity for me to the level where it is for you as much as I as I did really admire it. A little more heat between the two of them. I think McMurray lacks a certain darkness that in some other noir relationships we see. But this connects us to the Stanwyck Marathon. Here's a curious thing I've noticed about her and watching all of these films together. She is so sly. She's so whip smart, always ahead of her male co-stars. They're playing catch up. They're almost too busy trying to play catch up to flirt on her level. And that's okay in some of these films. But when you're talking about a noir, a steamy noir like this, you need there to be a portion of the entrapment where they're on the same level. And I think McMurray's Neff for me talks tough. He tries to be in charge. He throws baby around a lot and mostly in a way that is a command rather than a term of endearment. But I don't know that he's equipped for the joust here. That doesn't undermine the film in any way. This is a case of where it's not even a flaw to the movie, but it's an area where if there had been maybe just one more seduction scene where I felt like he was seducing her a little bit too or keeping up with her then the movie would have been elevated even more. So I don't even want to call this a flaw because I think the relationship works for the way the film wants it to. And maybe it works this way because the priority for Wilder and others is on Robinson and McMurray rather than McMurray and Stanwyck. That could be it. But for me, and especially thinking about this in terms of femme fatales in the film noir, um, that's the one thing where, where I just was looking for a tiny bit more. Well, I'll say this. Everybody I know their first response to double indemnity is that Fred McMurray just isn't quite up to the challenge. He's a little too boring. He's a little too bland, whatever it is, a little too normal. He can't do it. Give yourself some more viewings, Josh. And I'm going to save any more thoughts about Fred McMurray's performance for our awards here. Okay. Yeah. We we can talk a little bit more about this, uh, this Stanwyck thing with her male co-stars too. I think that'll probably come up in the awards as well. But let me just state that that is what it's tied up in for me. It's tied up in the fact that this film really ultimately is not at all about the heat between those two characters. She's just another nudge. She's just another nudge in something sure. that that Walter has his 
his mind set on. She's the spark. She lights the flame and she has to light the flame. And I have to believe that that the dynamic between them is is such that he can't he can't overlook that flame and that it's 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 hot. That's what and I'm looking I, for. Yeah. And I, I think it's hot enough. And I think that 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 jousting between them is is there. But in the context of a Stanwick marathon, there is a little bit of a contradiction for me in the fact that I think she is absolutely peak femme fatale. And at the same time, I think that this movie does put her on the side a little bit because of that emphasis on Neff and Keys. This is McMurray's movie. The only other film like this in our marathon is Meet John, Meet John Doe. Doe. Yeah. And you talked about that with Michael, and I had the same feeling. If we had to do it all over again, I'm glad I saw Meet John Doe, but we probably should have swapped it out for another film where she was the star mm-hmm. and the main character. She's definitely sidelined in that movie, especially that's noticeable when her character has the most interesting potential and the most interesting arc and I think is the the ripest for exploration of what that movie wants to talk about. But it's Gary Cooper's movie. It's John Doe's movie. Right. Similarly, this is Walter Neff's movie and, and his and Keys, I think. But she's so good and so striking and so memorable that she does elevate Phyllis Dietrichson into one of the all-time great femme fatales, if not the greatest. Before we transition to our Stanwick Marathon Awards, we'll say farewell to radio listeners if you want to follow along with this marathon, you want to see our picks for our favorite scenes and performances from the Standwick Marathon, go to filmspotting.net slash marathons, or you can hear the podcast edition of this show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We always close out marathons, Josh, with our marathon awards. We look back on the marathons, five categories typically, and we've got a great name here for these awards. We are calling our Standwick Awards the Hopsy Potsies. And people who followed along will know what that's a reference to. First, I do want to give some credit to our brilliant listeners who submitted ideas for the awards and will give proper credit for this name. We have Bill McLaughlin in Kelowna, British Columbia, who said, Josh, we should use the anklets. Very simply put, the anklet that Stanwyck's Phyllis Dietrichson wears could as easily represent ambition and confinement. He ties that to Stella Dallas, to meet John Doe, back to double indemnity. And he says, rabbit hole alert, if you Google double indemnity plus anklet, there's a lot there. There is. There's a great article by Glenn Kenny called A Woman's Equipment, Barbara Stanwyck's Anklet in Double Indemnity, if you want to dive in. So a great idea, a great name for our awards. Mark Chandler says, just watch Meet John Doe for the first time. The award should be called The Helots. And you have to say that in your Walter Brennan voice, Josh. We'll save that for Michael. Jeannie the Meanie Supremi on Twitter said the drum boogies, a reference to Ball of Fire. Love that. Finally, Mark Herney in Essex Junction, Vermont, says he was inspired by Ball of Fire, obviously. He gave us the civilization toppers, the split infinitives, the yum-yums, the sugar pusses, and finally, the hopsy potsies. Hopsy being the nickname Stanwyck's character gives to Henry Fonda in The Lady Eve, and Potsy being the nickname her character, Sugarpuss, gives to Gary Cooper's professor. So we like the fact that it merges together two films from the marathon, two really good films from the marathon. Thus, the Hopsy Potsies are born. I love it. All good suggestions. But yeah, I think we all felt pretty strongly about the Hopsy Potsies. Yes. And we're going to start with our award for best 
non-Barbara Stanwyck performance. Here are the candidates I came up with. The nominees would be from Babyface, George Brent, perhaps as Cortland Trenholm, or Donald Cook, maybe, as Ned Stevens. From Stella Dallas, Anne Shirley as Laurel Dallas, her daughter. Henry Fonda as Charles Pike in The Lady Eve. From Meet John Doe, you've got Gary Cooper as John Doe. Cooper again in Ball of Fire. Fred McMurray as Walter Neff in Double Indemnity or... I'm throwing in, even though it's a supporting role, Edward G. Robinson as Barton Keyes in Double Indemnity. What's your favorite? Oh, yeah, I definitely considered Edward G. Robinson. Just, you know, aside from the dynamics you were talking about that, um, you know, is the key to the film for you. I love the gangster gruffness he just brings to the character, chomping on that cigar and sparring with Neff. Robinson is great. So I gave him some thought. Charles Coburn. I don't think you mentioned him, but in The Lady Eve, as Stanwyck's gentleman, conman father, has probably one of my favorite lines from the marathon when he says, let us be crooked, but never common. I mean, it's just one of those, you know, he's perf- he's playing the character that way the whole film, but there's something delightful about him saying it as well. Gary Cooper, I loved in Ball of Fire. Uh, Meet John Doe, I would say, reminded me of his comedic talents. I don't always think of those first when it comes to Cooper, but then his turn as this smitten English professor and ball of fire, just affirmed that I thought he was delightful, but my winner, and we're going to go back to, you know, how, how Stanwyck relates to her co-stars here. It's Henry Fonda and the lady Eve, Adam, it's Hopsy himself. Um, he admits in his performance from the start that he's got no chance against her as a performer or as a character. And there's something about the not even, trying (laughs) that I admire to what Fonda is doing here, which doesn't mean he's not doing work. He's very funny. He's incredible. And yet he's submitting in such a silly way that it somehow makes their relationship romantic to me. It's, it's something I can believe. I was thinking about this, putting these notes together. It's sort of a screwball variation of what's going on in Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread, which is, you know, a movie with its funny bits, but that central Mm -hmm. relationship, I think, has a similar dynamic. So like Cooper, I mostly knew Fonda as a dramatic actor. Seeing him be so good in this was a delightful revelation. And yeah, let, let's get to your your McMurray pick and we can talk about um, why he's the better match for Stanwyck for you. Well, he's my runner up in this category. Oh, Josh. OK. I, I do think that McMurray is someone who is unfairly maligned or maybe underappreciated. People see him as the my three sons guy or whatever it is, and they see him as a foil here to Stanwyck's Phyllis, which he is. And he's supposed to be kind of the fall guy. And that puts him in a position of inferiority, perhaps. And I think as you watch and rewatch this film, the sense I get anyway is that, no, there isn't an imbalance of power. I mean, Stanwyck is, of course, Barbara Stanwyck, and she's one of the all-time greats. And McMurray isn't on that level. But in this role, and considering what this film, as I argued, is ultimately about, it's about that quote-unquote average, unforgettable guy trying to punch above his weight class. He nails that. And actually, I don't know who else or what other star of the time would have been able to play that character, this character, this Walter Neff, that effectively. And the moments between him and Stanwyck, we're going to get to one in particular later, where they have to have that patter with each other. That doesn't feel to me like McMurray playing. 
that feels like someone who has some confidence in the lines he's delivering. And as you noted too, Josh, even early on, is willing to assert some power over Phyllis and say, I'm walking out of here. I'm leaving. I know what you're after. He's not just a lackey here. And McMurray, I think, brings everything that he needs to bring to this performance, including the fact that you have to believe that he has those feelings, that he has the admiration that I'm calling love, ultimately, this platonic love for Edward G. Robinson. That is something that has to come through, and you see it every time he lights that match. You see it in the way he looks at him. So I think that even though it doesn't show or put a great demand on emotional range, I think it's easy to overlook just how good McMurray actually is in that role. That said, I think from a screwball comedy standpoint, Josh, Henry Fonda is my choice too, is Charles Spike. Oh, nice. Good morning. Thank you for the roses. Gee, you look pretty. I hope you slept well. I'm still a little jumpy. How is that, uh, Emma? She's just having breakfast. What does she eat? Don't tell me. <laughs> no, I won't. I hope you didn't mind my asking you to breakfast. Well, it wouldn't be very polite if I said I did, would it? No, I don't suppose it would. And it wouldn't be true either. You have the darnest way of bumping a fella down and bouncing him up again. And then bumping him down again. Um. A role that I didn't fully appreciate the first time I saw it. You mentioned Phantom Thread. Charles Pike moves at a similar tempo to Daniel Day-Lewis's character in that P.T. Anderson film. And at first, I found him out of sync Mm -hmm. with Stanwyck because of the pace of her performance. And there was something I felt was a little bit boring about it. And now I really appreciate how those tempos match up together. And we talked about during our review the harmony of their performance, that they are such distinct personalities that you actually understand why someone like Stanwyck and the force of nature that she is can have that type of impact on his character. So we're in agreement so far on Henry Fonda taking this award. I love it. Are we doing best Stanwyck performance next? Yeah, let's go to best Stanwyck performance. The nominees are Lily Powers in Babyface, Stella Dallas in Stella Dallas, Gene Harrington, The Lady Eve, and Mitchell meet John Doe, Sugar Puss O'Shea in Ball of Fire, and finally, Phyllis Dietrichson, Double Indemnity. Well, while we're praising The Lady Eve, I did have to give some consideration to her con woman there. I talked about how I could barely keep up with how much humor, both verbal and physical, she's cramming into every moment. But it did come down to two dramatic turns for me, Double Indemnity and Stella Dallas. Boy, I, let's go back to uh, to another moment in Double Indemnity that refers to Stanwyck's face. I talked about her expression during the murder mm-hmm. scene as she's driving the car, and it's that blank terror. How about later in the movie? where her stepdaughter, played by Jean Heather, is talking about a moment years earlier. This is when Phyllis was nurse to her ailing mother, so before she'd gotten involved with her father, and comments how she came into her mother's room, who was sick, finds all the windows open, and it was cold, and she looked around to see that Phyllis, the nurse, had just come into the doorway and was responsible, clearly responsible for this. And the stepdaughter says, There was a look in her eyes I'll never forget. What I love about that story is, yes, the plot point that, oh, we're dealing with something way worse than we thought we were as an audience and as Walter Neff, but also 
that's the look she has when she's behind the wheel in the car. It is. She just mm-hmm. described that look. So really, really gave a lot of thought to Phyllis Dietrichson. But then we have Stella Dallas. And again, think about how she uses her face here. I talked a lot about her voice in Stella Dallas, how she used it like a lasso, whipping it about, but also caressing people with it. How about a couple of facial expressions we get in this film? The simmering behind her eyes when her daughter, played by Anne Shirley, describes the woman her ex-husband is dating at this point as a flower. You can just see what that's doing to her behind her eyes. And then the vacant expression she has at one point, looking at herself in the mirror. No makeup on here. And that's representative of a rawness and a vulnerability in this performance that Stanwyck doesn't always show, at least in the in the marathon. So I'm going to go with Stella Dallas. Just a slight edge here. But the fact I think that as a melodrama, it's really a character study. It gives her more work to do than Double Indemnity. As you said, Adam, she does. I don't mm-hmm. think she gets sidelined, but it's not entirely her story there. It is her story in Stella Dallas, and she makes the most of it. Yeah, you make a compelling case. This was so hard. This was the hardest of all of them, as it should be for a Barbara Stanwyck marathon. The only title you can throw out is Anne Mitchell and Meet John Doe for the reasons we stated before. She's not the main character of the film. She really doesn't get enough to do, unfortunately. In every other case, even Double Indemnity, even though she's maybe not the lead, that's such an iconic performance for also reasons we discussed that it's my runner up. I can't imagine anyone else playing that role and doing it with the iciness that she does. But man, Josh, I'm glad you love that performance in Stella Dallas because I do too. And there are so many Stanwick moments that I find just heartbreaking from it. But then you have something like Ball of Fire where you see just that energy, the vivacity, the the comedic dexterity, the use of one-liners and those quips. Ball of Fire is great as well. So this was really hard, but it's back-to-back Lady Eve winners for me. It's Gene Harrington. Oh, I, I think love Gene it. Harrington is the definitive, at least of these six films, and maybe definitive overall in terms of her career, Barbara Stanwyck performance. Seeing the way she seduces Henry Fonda, we'll talk more about that in a moment, the sensuality that she exudes, the coldness that comes through at times and that she is a con artist and she's someone who has a job here and she starts out a little bit insensitive and is willing to use him, but then you see how she softens over time. I I think that you get the full range of Stanwyck's capabilities in The Lady Eve. Isn't your son feeling well? What's the matter with you? Well, I mean to say, uh, have we met? Well, of course we have. Your father just introduced her. Aren't you feeling well? Uh, <laughs> sure. Oh, I'm so sorry. You meant, hadn't you met me before someplace? Yeah. Oh, very probably. Let me see, where could it have been? Uh, Deauville. No. Bielitz? No. I know Gay. You had a mustache at the time, and you tried to beat me out of dance in the casino. No. I am loving the Lady Eve love, as as we'll see as our categories continue. Yeah, usually my awards for marathons, Josh, strike a pretty good balance. I didn't go back and do the math or look at every marathon awards, but there's a good cross-section of films referenced. That didn't happen here. And as I said, every film in this marathon I liked, even Meet John Doe, which I think is the worst film of the bunch, I gave three stars to and think it's worth seeing. So it's not as if you've got a bunch of bad movies. I just think you have two movies that stand out 
really head and shoulders above the rest. Let's get to our unique marathon category. We always do this with Buster Keaton. It was the best gag. And we try to find something that is specific to the performer or the director or the genre that we were exploring in the marathon. For this, we came up with the best man-eater moment. Can you explain? <laughs> I think this was your this was your term. So it was. I think you it should. It was my term. And it's okay. really self-explanatory, especially if you've watched oh, any of these movies, probably. Yeah, I think it's it's something that sums up her persona. Uh, and it's something that could be personified by dialogue or mm-hmm. by physicality, by or a both. look, or both. So there's a lot of directions we could go here with best man-eater moment. Uh, ball of fire. Here's a gentle one. And I called this out in our review. When she steps into the sunlight after Gary Cooper talks about how distracting her hair is when the sunlight hits it. I just like that sort of uh, way to, to to nibble on Gary Cooper a little bit. Uh, oh, here's a one-liner there, too, is when he comments on their quote-unquote relationship. And she says, have we got one of those? Just putting them in, in his place. I just talked about in Double Indemnity making Walter Neff jealous of the lounge chair. I think that's a one that we could point to. There's a there's a ton, right? Uh-huh. There's one in Lady Eve that I don't want to give away at this point because it's going to come up in another one of my picks. Let's spread some love around here, though, and talk about Babyface because I am going to go with that for my winner. Actually, maybe surprising, but she somewhat came out of the gate or at least early on in her career knowing how to get this across on screen. And this is when Lily, the very beginning of the film, she's working for her father at this saloon, working we're meant to assume in more ways than one for her father at this saloon and just draws a line in the sand. Mm-hmm. It's not going to take any crap from her cus- her father's customers on this day. And there's this leering politician who comes in who clearly has power over the father. And she sets it up when he asks her how she's been just by saying, I was good up to now. <laughs> It just puts him in his place again. But then my pick is a little bit later when he actually paws at her, just cracks a bottle of beer over his head. That's it. That's my man-eater moment. I sat up when uh, when that happened and thought, oh, this marathon's going to be fun. <laughs> when I suggested man-eater moment, I was thinking about a scene where Sandwick's character gets not only what she wants, but maybe there's a sense of payback to it against men too. There's manipulation with some menace to it. And if that's the case, the only way to go is with a scene from Babyface. And I definitely considered the scenes you mentioned, the moments you mentioned. I also love in that film, the two big scenes she has with the guy who I'll describe as the future father-in-law, who she ends up having a relationship with. The way she manipulates him is so fantastic. Ball of Fire, the scene you mentioned, and when they come together and actually start kissing, how she gets Gary Cooper to fall right into her plans. The first night, even, you use this picture on your tweet about this category, right? The the leg that she's showing all eight of the professors around her. She's She's getting what she needs in that moment, which is a place to stay. And if she's got to show some leg to do it, she'll get it. But it came down to these two for me, and this is where I'm going to go with maybe a little bit of a weird choice, but I want to talk about a scene you've mentioned a couple times, which is, as a man-eater moment, Mr. Dietrichson's murder in Double Indemnity. Mm. Because one of the most indelible moments from this entire marathon, 
And from all of film noir, I think is that close up on her face when Walter's killing her husband right next to her and the way Wilder just keeps it on her. She's silent, so she's not using her dexterity with words that I think about Stanwyck doing an awful lot. She's not in the act of manipulation, but the fruits of her man-eating labor are on display. In that moment, two men are doomed, and her reaction, I think, encompasses so much. You described it as a blank stare. Maybe a little bit of a cool shove effect here where we're seeing it and we are cognizant of what's happening just outside the frame. And so we're reading into what we want to read into what Phyllis might be thinking. But she's got to allow us to do that. That's the trick of a great actor. That is the trick. A great actor has to be able and be willing to do that, to not try to show or play too much. And what I get out of that, Josh, is a little bit of detachment, almost like this doesn't make her feel a thing. There's even just a split second where I actually feel like she acknowledges the horror of it, or at least the the truth of the moment. Oh, this is happening. You can't go back from this. I even think you could argue there's a little bit of erotic satisfaction in the moment and this being completed. She so subtly conveys all of that in about five seconds. So the fact that two men are being eaten up in that moment is the reason why I had to put it in there. But Josh, my pick is, I can't believe it. I'm going back to the Lady Eve because there's no better scene where Stanwyck literally and figuratively smothers a man into submission with her sultriness and her words than in this film. That first night, the the nightcap, to when they meet on the boat after playing cards back in his room. She has her mark. She's not going to let him go. She's on the lounger. He's on the floor, I think, actually next to her. The way she gently caresses his hair, his ear. She slows down the pace of her patter. She even takes her voice just down slightly to kind of lull him into this. I love that she breaks that up then with a little joke about how your ideal mate has to have good teeth. And he says, oh, you're now you're just kidding me. And it just lightens things up for a second. But then she goes right back at it and she is in complete control of him to the point where it feels like Henry Fonda is melting into the floor. (laughs) And for that reason, it had to be my pick an ideal mate that exchange in the Lady Eve. You say that's why you've never married? No, it's just I I've never met her. Suppose she's around somewhere in the world. It would be too bad if you never bumped into each other. Well. I I suppose you know what she looks like and everything. I think so. I'll bet she looks like Marguerite and Faust. Oh, no, she isn't. I mean, she hasn't. She's not as bulky as opera singer. Oh, how are her teeth? Huh? Well, you should always pick one out with good teeth. It saves expense later. The only reason I imagine it might not be your choice here is if it's in the running for your best overall Stanwyck scene, which is our final category. In the running? Yeah, it's, I knew it's it would the, take it's it. The, it's the winner, so let's go <laughs> right to, to spoil that. It. Let's go right to best scene. It's yeah. incredible. And I considered it as it would be for me another one of those gentle man-eating moments because it's involving all of those qualities you just described. And, and it's gentle because, you know, he's 
at the end of the day, he's kind of the better for it. <laughs> you know, I think right. I think Hopsy comes around in that department. But yeah, it's so wonderful. And I think, you know, the way the line in it for me is you're very sweet. Don't let me go as she's got him completely in her grip. Comfortable? Yes, very. Oh, sorry. Oh, hold me tight. Oh, you don't know what you've done to me. I'm terribly sorry. Oh, that's all right. I wouldn't have frightened you for anything in the world. I mean, if there's anyone in the world I wouldn't have wanted to. It's you. You're very sweet. Don't let me go. I was being a little coy, but I was pretty sure that was going to be your winner, Josh, and it definitely deserves it. I'll call it my runner-up in this category, but I had to go with the scene from Double Indemnity, and it's the scene that I think best exemplifies McMurray and Stanwick together on equal footing, jousting, to use your word, against each other, and everything that the scene and the dialogue implies and how it ties to the film as a whole. And it's the, how fast was I going, officer, exchange. Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. So it's playful, it's sexy, but underlying all of it is this idea of power. Getting down off your motorcycle, giving me a ticket mundane but also kind of hinting at some dirty talk and then it goes full-on past hinting when she says maybe i i'll whack you over the knuckles for it right now it's 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 sex and danger all tied up with each other her then reinforcing her power in the scene by mentioning her husband and the way stanwick in that moment just slightly modulates her voice and her physicality she pauses she just straightens her body a little bit and without raising her voice at all, she just makes it a little bit more direct and forceful. She invokes her husband and he could say nothing more than that tears it. That bit of performance by her ends the entire little play that we just saw play out. So for me, the combination of their performances and the incredible Wilder and Chandler dialogue in the scene and that underbelly of power that connects it all together makes it my favorite scene from the marathon. Yeah. And for the record, I do think McMurray's very good there. The, the early dangerous flirtatiousness definitely works for me too. So our final category, we do have to name a best picture of the marathon. No surprise here, Josh. I gave all of my awards to the lady Eve and double indemnity. And I said, double indemnity is one of my all time favorite films. So that's my best picture, but lady Eve is the runner up. What about you? reversed perhaps yeah i mean i think this is very indicative of (laughs) 
the general way we look at movies is that I would have the exact reverse and uh, did think about Double Indemnity. Really liked a lot of these titles, though I think uh, a couple are almost at that level, Stella Dallas and Ball of Fire as well. But it is The Lady Eve, maybe the broadest comedy. Maybe more so than Ball of Fire, but it's the one, when I think back on this marathon, that puts the biggest smile on my face. Stanwick is the biggest reason for that. Like you with Double Indemnity, I think Fonda's working at the top of his game. Preston Sturgis has complete command of the material. It is about as close to a perfect film as you're going to get, The Lady Eve, for me. So that's that's my best picture. If you want to see all of those picks and revisit our past discussions from our Summer of Stanwick Marathon, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash marathons. And at this point, we have not decided on our next marathon topic or even when we will do our next marathon. So there will be some discussions taking place behind the scenes. And if you have a great idea, you want to throw it out there, feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, that's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll, which asks, what is the funniest live-action comedy of the last 10 years? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit Filmspotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at Filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Is it too late? Can I change my vote to pop star? You should. You really should. Okay. Out on digital this weekend, Confess Fletch. John Hamm taking over the role of Fletch in Greg Matola's new film. Stars Annie Momolo and Kyle MacLachlan as well. In limited release, can't wait to see David Bowie in IMAX, directed by Brett Morgan. It's called Moon Age Daydream. Pearl is also out. This is Ty West's prequel to his own X, which came out earlier this year. I need to see both of them. You can also see Saoirse Ronan, Sam Rockwell, and Adrian Brody in a London-set murder mystery directed by Tom George. It's called See How They Run. In wide release, it's Gina Prince-Bythewood's 19th-century Africa-set action film about an all-female unit of warriors. Lashana Lynch co-stars with Viola Davis as The Woman King. We will talk about The Woman King and do a related top five, perhaps our favorite movie, Queens, next week here on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Betty Lavendero. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.